So uh, leading into the, the section that I wrote, hopefully you remember, but for those who were unable to be with us last week, I'll just recount kind of where we've gotten. The scripture had reminded us about uh, seven men who were marked out for a special role of service. And among those seven men, special things had been spoken about Stephen. Because Stephen was going to carry on and have a very significant ministry. And here in chapter 7, that ministry would lead to his martyrdom. Which more clearly means his death. He would die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For his unwavering commitment to it. Now I want us to understand that as, as we take this up. He has been ministering. God had been pleased to grant miracles to be done by his hand. They had uh, groups had risen and begun to dispute with him. It tells us in the end of chapter 6. And in their disputes and interaction with him. No one could withstand him. The wisdom and spirit with which he spoke. Because what he was declaring to them wasn't his feelings and his ideas, his opinions and his experience. It was the truth of God's word. Even it ends, this chapter does, by not only speaking about the, the spirit and wisdom, chapter 6 does. But it goes on to say these very words and at the end of verse 15. Gazing at him, all who sent, uh, sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So, so you get the sense, wow, here is Stephen. He's coming to those who are antagonistic to the gospel. Who are standing against the proclamation of Christ. But he's doing it with a spirit of wisdom. He's doing it in a way that no one can withstand him. He, he, he's radiating in some sense the face of an angel. I think it would not be too far to say... He's doing everything right, good, faithful, pleasing to God. So therefore, if he does everything right with the right countenance and the right spirit and the right wisdom, then surely he will be able to convince those who oppose him, right? Surely the, the wisdom, the spirit, the winsomeness of it all will persuade those who stand against to join him. Right? I mean, you, you might think so. And maybe there would be some today who might look at the outcome of this because we do know, and we did glance at it last week, at the end of chapter 7, they grind their teeth against him and they come at him and they stone him to death. So there might be some who go back in and say, all right, let's get back in there and figure out where Stephen blew it. You know, there's somewhere here he must have gone off track because instead of, 3,000 people cut to the heart and coming to be baptized, like Peter did. He, on the other hand, the response and reaction he got was not only anger, but a furious, uncontrollable anger that moved the mob to violence and unrelenting violence till he was done. 
But I ask you, did the scriptures anywhere say Stephen blew it? Does it say anywhere where St- that Stephen should have done something different? Interestingly, the scriptures do give us nothing but commendation or compliments regarding Stephen. So it might be wise for us to step back and say, you know what? Whether someone has done right or wrong does not depend on the response of men. Because if people start to press that, then you find yourself back in the Gospel of John in chapter 6. And when Jesus is teaching, telling people that he is the bread of life. And they must eat him. And he's telling them no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws. And he's, he's laying out these absolutely unwavering, undeniable, and necessary teachings. That... We are dependent upon the drawing grace of God. And there is no hope, no life, no salvation, no eternal sustenance apart from the person of Jesus. When Jesus lays that out in absolutely strong, powerful, and even picturesque forms. What did the people say? Well, this is hard to accept. And it tells us at that point... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And you think, wow, that is interesting. And then Paul goes out on his ministry and there are times that he'll be in one place and he'll preach the gospel to which he is run out of town. And then he'll go to the next town and do exactly the same thing. But in that place, the people were more noble. They searched the scriptures to see if these things were true. And they received the word with thankfulness. And in the next town, the same thing. And he evokes a riot. And another time, stoned and left for dead outside of the town. And maybe even our human tendency might be to say, wait a second. God must have loved Paul more because when Stephen was stoned, he was done and dead. But when Paul was stoned and they left him for dead, he got up and continued. What a, what a sign of God's love. And I think, really? It's simply God's secret providence and his purposeful calling in the life of Saul. Paul. Realistically, if we look back at it, who got off better? Stephen's, Jesus received my spirit. That day he was delivered from all of the difficulty, all of the struggle, all of the weakness with sin, all of the miseries and all of the things that we face on a daily basis. Troubles from without, troubles from within, the the, as Ecclesiastes defines it, the vexation that is life, right? He was delivered from that, where Paul had to live on for more beatings and imprisonments and whippings and shipwrecks and so forth. And you think, well... Which, which path did you think was the one that was most desirable to you? 
And see, that's why I urge us often to be cautious about running ahead and saying, oh, what great love. James, the, uh, the brother of John, was arrested and then put to death. Peter was shortly thereafter arrested and then delivered from that, that arrest. Are you ready to conclude which one God loved more? Please don't. God has a different purpose on our life. And it's very important that we stop assessing God's goodness, God's greatness, God's love on the basis of our present comfort. On the basis of our present enjoyment, our present seeming deliverance. I want us to really recognize this. And so as he goes into this, uh, we can see that Stephen's, the outcome isn't necessarily what he's going for. It is unlikely that as he begins his sermon in chapter 7, he's thinking, I hope that by the time I'm done, they all want to kill me. That's never the preaching goal, is it? Because it's like, no, but the reality is this. The truth proclaimed without dulling the edges of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The truth proclaimed without uh, somehow sweetening it with the leaven of the desires of men. Sometimes strongly offends people. Sometimes strongly antagonizes them. Who are you to say there's only one savior? Who are you to say there's only one way? Maybe even who are you to say I'm a sinner? Yeah. Well, we, co we come into this and they had made a number of accusations against Stephen. Brought together false witnesses to say that he's saying this and that. In chapter 7 verse 1, the council leaders, the high priest himself actually says to him, Are these things so? So Stephen, here is your opportunity to answer. And what I do love about this is he does not immediately go into self-defense mode. He doesn't immediately go in. It doesn't even seem like his priority is defending himself. His priority is declaring God. God's truth and God's salvation. Now, we've got to understand this. Uh, there's a host of individuals and, and, and apologetics is a good and valuable and necessary thing. But I've known individuals who, who will engage in all kinds of debates about creation versus evolution and, 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 and a host of other things. And they've had extended discussions and lengthy debates that sometimes have gone on months and years with individuals, whether face-to-face -face or online. And they've never declared Christ. <laughs> they've never declared sin. And the separation and enmity. The wrath and judgment of God. And the forgiveness that is in Christ and his shed blood. It never comes. Because they think, well first I've got to get them to agree about creation. Well, really? 
If the Spirit of God is pleased to, if God is pleased by His Spirit to pour out His grace on someone in the hearing of the gospel, the rest of apologetics is going to come very easily. Because the Spirit is going to grant them the ability, in a sense, to hear the Word of God and know the truth of it. But until then, they're in darkness. You know, the whole thought is, uh, as they're in darkness, you can try all you want to, des to describe to them the things that you see in the light. But they don't see it. And, if, and, and you think, well, if I can just convince them. The fact is this, even if you can get them to say, okay, I acknowledge what you see. If they don't see it, what good is that semi-acknowledgement? And it is in the proclamation of the gospel that God is pleased to open the eyes of the blind. To shed light on those who are sitting in darkness. That's even what he tells Paul as part of the calling of the ministry that he will have. To open the eyes of the blind. To set free the prisoners who are captive. Which is why I'm fine and I, and I enjoy personally all that goes on. In apologetics and worldview discussions and all those things. They have great merit and there is a place for them. But the place of primacy is the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, you, this is what can lead people to great antagonism. And as we take it up here, he begins. And he begins it again with a sweet spirit. Men, brothers and fathers, hear me. He implores them to hear what he has to say. And I do love so much the way that this begins. Because the, the first point, this has all been introduction thus far. The first point is this this morning. We see here, he begins a panorama of God's providence. He just begins unfolding piece by piece. Now, some of you, and it's going to happen, and I'm going to help you with this. When we read through this, we think he's, he's working his way through a chronological history of, we could say, history of Israel. And it goes from Abraham to, his, to Isaac to Jacob on to Moses, the patriarchs and Moses. And so he's working through the history of Israel. No, he's not. He's working through the history of the hand of God upon those people. And sometimes we severely miss that. We fix our eyes on those people and those men and we miss they are they have a role and they have a place. But it is God who is exalted. These men are instruments, servants God remains exalted. He remains the king. So he begins his word, uh, his message in verse 2. The God of glory appeared. He starts out, the God of glory appeared. And I love the way if you go down, to briefly zip over to the very end of it. Verse 55, as they are coming at him to stone him, full of the spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. So you see book ending this sermon. Are declarations of what? God is glorious. Right? We can't miss that. 
And, and, and we will not miss that. Because what he goes on, he's going to come, he's going to speak about Abraham. God, the glory of God appeared to our father of Abraham. God said what? Go into the land that I will show you. Not go wherever you want. Pick whatever land you want and I'll give it to you. It was God unfolding his purposes. And, and, and we might also say, and he did. Abraham obeyed. How wonderful. And Abraham did obey. But there's something woven into this text here that's rich. And it says this. Partway through verse 4. He lived in, in the land of the Chaldeans. And lived in the land of Haran. After his father died. It says this. God removed him. Hmm. So wait a second. I thought he went. So did he go? Or did God remove him? Well, you can't fight over those two things. The reality is some, he went. But sometimes the scriptures are pleased to reveal to us the mechanisms, the workings of God that undergird and underlie the actions of men. The reason why he went is because God what? Removed him. Or in a sense you could say God moved him to do so. Because again he's going to go on from there with Abraham. Now let's move over to the patriarchs in verse 9. They sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. But, and it says this. But God was with him. Again the focus isn't ultimately on Joseph. God appeared to Abraham. He gets over to Joseph. Joseph to Egypt. But God was with him rescued him out of his affliction, gave him favor over, over Pharaoh, uh, and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him the ruler over Egypt. Oh, if you, if you were to go on with me, you would see also, uh, we see with Moses as well in verse 22 and 23. Well, what moved Moses to decide that he was going to step up and attempt to be a deliverer to his people? Well, the scriptures tell us in verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart. Hmm. Wonder how that happened, right? It, it, just the astounding work, e even uh, if we were to go on further, it says in verse 34, I have surely seen the affliction of the people, God says, in, who are in Egypt, still in verse 34, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you. So who has come down to deliver them? So I ask you, is Moses the deliverer of the people, or is God? And if you read through the scripture, it can get a little convoluted because there are times that it seems Moses delivered them. But Moses was merely the instrument. The ultimate cause was God. And ultimately, even within Moses, the scriptures reveal to us that even his motive to do so came to him. It didn't come from him. It came into his heart. It didn't come out of the heart. Jesus, when talking about sin one time, says, you know where sin comes from? Out of the heart. Out of the heart come evil 
and evil speech and lust and desire and every evil thing. Those come out of the heart. But God is pleased in His mercy at times to do what? Not leave our hearts as they are. But pour His grace into our heart. Pour His Spirit into our hearts. Pour His will into our hearts. And oh, thank Him for doing that. Do we understand that if he did not do that, where each one of us would be? If we waited for it to come out of our hearts to follow Christ, we'd be done. But oh, the grace of God that it came into our heart in the call of the gospel by the power of the spirit. Christ became for us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification. Our salvation. What a God. What grace. Sometimes I think of that. Our brothers and sisters all across the world. Oft sing. And I hope it never stops being sung. That wonderful song. Amazing grace. But as we don't understand the scope of it. It seems. Ordinary grace. Convenient grace. No, 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 brothers and sisters. It is amazing grace. When I was dead, I was made alive in Christ. When I was in chains, he broke the chains and set me free. When I was blind, he gave me sight. When I was deaf, he opened my ears. He did it all. All of God. All of grace. All of Christ. Amen. Oh, and the, so he, he just begins, and, and it's going to pour through here that, that, that really, I don't want us to miss this as he recounts the history of it. It is really, God is the main character, and we miss that sometimes throughout the scriptures. David was a man after God's own heart. Shall we give that praise to David? Or shall we recognize God did that in such a man? And if God was pleased to do that to David, he can give me that heart, a man after his own heart. He can give this person here who's still at enmity with Christ, my neighbor, my cousin, my brother, my loved one. My son, my daughter, whoever it could be close and, and that's still apart from God can change their heart. God can give them a new heart and a new desire. He can, he can open their eyes to see, ha, ah, this is all a wasteland. I've been, I've been working for the bread that does not satisfy. It does not last. Oh, God, you are everything. There is more. Oh, and so when we move from the panorama of God's providence and we see how it, we will see how unfolding, it's prophetic, it's purposeful, it's powerful, it's so rich and glorious. He goes on secondly to see the prophetic promise to Abraham and his offspring. And you can see that in verses 1 to 8. He begins to speak of those things. And, and there are, we won't take the time to go into it. There are some for those who enjoy deep scholarship. There are some interesting challenges Within the narrative here. That some people like to say. Hey. This narrative differs a degree. From what we have over in Genesis. And, and, they, and they get all worked up about that. 
Uh, we would be here for about five hours were to I address all of the issues that do arise in this particular section. And I will be happy to discuss those things with you if you're at odds with some of those things. But I can declare this to you with full confidence through careful study. Every single one of those supposed differences or distinctions are easily resolved if you really pay attention to what the scripture is saying and, and you allow for the language to carry out the full breadth of its meaning instead of forcing it into a limited pedantic expectation that you already have. In other words, what I'm really saying is any seeming controversy or contradiction that's in this passage is not so. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And actually by putting pieces together that initially appear to differ, what we only end up finding out is more details. And it enhances our understanding of those things that had happened. But we want to focus in on the highlights because the problem that happens here is they don't come at the end of this sermon. They're not upset because they think he misrepresented some of the historical data. They understood he was accurate as we ought to understand that he was accurate. They had a problem with his message. They had a problem with the general thrust of what he was communicating. And, and because remember, their commitment at the end of chapter 6, and, and their biggest frustration, one of the frustrations that was also towards Christ, that was towards the, against the early Christians, and towards those, uh, that those false witnesses, means witnesses who weren't even necessarily there or understood, were claiming they had such a high priority on the temple in Jerusalem. And they had such a high priority on the national people of Israel and that high priority uh, that they wanted to be constrained to them was rooted in the law. And so they come on this attack and he begins to unfold these things. Is really the priority the temple? I mean, haven't you missed it? I mean, heaven is God's throne. Earth is his footstool. The temple's smaller than the earth. You know, if he fills the heavens in the highest of heavens, really? Does God need that temple? Was God unworshipable before the tabernacle was established? No. And so, uh, but men get, they get caught up in their traditions and in their customs, even traditions and customs that had been God given to them. But somehow what happens is they begin to value the temple over the God that it represents. They, believe, they begin to value the people and the nation as opposed to the God whose people they were supposed to be. Whose holy nation they were supposed to be. The, the, for some reason, the eyes always keep coming down. Keep coming down. And it ought not be goes on here and again I've said the prophetic he will give this land to him and his offspring and he, and he works in wonderful details here how verse 5 it says this 
He gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others that would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. And that's exactly what he had said in Genesis 15, 13 and following that to Abraham, this is going to happen. And did it happen? Yes. Well, how did God know it was going to happen? Some might say he foresaw the future. Please know this. He doesn't merely foresee the future. He controls the future. He doesn't simply know what is going to happen today. He didn't know there was going to be a thunderstorm. He is controlling these things and so, so what, I, what, what we see in there is they, they get all caught up in these things. Uh, and God spoke that, uh, about the offspring and they get all caught up in that. Not realizing what it says in Galatians 3. Paul will unfold this idea. And we'll see that we're going to see that each one of these things that he's beginning to do here. Is he's showing here's God's promise to Abraham. Here's God's work with the patriarchs. Here's God with Moses. And he's going to show how each of them point forward to Christ. Each of them picture Christ. Says this in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Correct? Yes. And I tell you what Paul is getting ready to do here. You and I better never do on our own. He is doing so as the Spirit of God leads him into all truth. He is doing so in a way that carries the very inspiration of God. So he is able to unfold what had been a mystery, what had been secret, but is now revealed. That's for them to do. And that is for us to listen to and learn from. What he says is this, God gave this promise to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, when you or anybody read those words in the Old Testament, what did we think they meant? To Abraham and then to his physical descendants. And there would be many ways in which his physical descendants would have a glorious purpose under the covenant of circumcision. And under the covenant of the law of Moses. They, we, we would see those things. But look what he does here. And it does not say offsprings. Referring to many. But referring to one. And to your offspring. Who is Christ. Whoa, so that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's why it's so glorious to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, Christ was descended by the flesh, uh, a Jew, correct? He was circumcised on the eighth day. He, he went through, he was born under the law. He indeed fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, we would say. Amen. But not only for himself, he being the only one who ever did, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for all who by grace through faith believe in him. 
And so that's why it says those then who are of Christ's, who have faith in Christ, are Abraham's offspring. And so we understand, whoa, wait a second. So you're saying that what he's saying is you guys are all caught up in the history of it. And the history of it was great, but the history of it all, of the law, it was our disciplinarian until Christ would be revealed. Of Abraham and his offspring and that, and that constantly apostate nation until Christ was revealed. And on and on and on where you see it just culminate and climax in the person of Christ. And they're still looking to the shadows. As Colossians says. No, no, no. The, these are shadows. The substance belongs to Christ. Why, why are you looking at the shadow? Look at Christ. You're caught up in that temple. The Corinthians will go on to say, you know what? We, the people of God, we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wait a second. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this earth if it was. And he, he's taking all of these things and he's showing an exceedingly glorious spiritual fulfillment in Christ. And men want to keep looking at the other. You know, it's just like those, those men who followed Jesus to the other side of the, of the water. Uh, and Jesus says, you followed me because I gave you bread. <laughs> You're coming for the physical. You could follow me all around to get the physical. But that doesn't get you anything. That's why in that, that sermon in John 6 that was so offensive to them that so many turned away. He says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. The flesh availeth nothing. And what do men keep doing? Looking at the flesh. And we tend to do it too. Well, let's look at Moses. David. Samson. Well, whenever you do, you see flawed and failing men. We turn them into uh, heroes of the faith. But if you carefully read all of the stories that God was pleased to unveil to us, these are tragically flawed men. Well, what did Abraham do? Uh, he gave his wife away twice, saying she's my sister, put her in very, very bad circumstances. Oh, David was a man after God's own heart. What did he do? <clears throat> we won't discuss that at this point. But I think you know very well what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. As if those were his only failings. We know that's not the case. And so uh, we have this tendency and, and we do it beyond that. We, we did it with uh, men of scripture. And then ever since men exist, we keep doing it. The early church would do it with the early church fathers. Right? And as it goes on continually, uh, the leaders of the Reformation, many of them would do it to some degree with Augustine. A flawed man. You know, and move on further. And many of us to the leaders of the Reformation. Flawed men. Or further on to the Puritans. Or further on. You, you can keep going. And even today. 
well, this man and this man and this conference and that conference. It never ends. Men looking to and glorifying men. God help us. There's something way more glorious than all of this. And don't fix your eyes on a man. Because already we've seen too much in our own lifetime. How many men who seemed like they would stand to the end have fallen severely. And I, and I don't want to break anybody's heart here. But if you list your greatest heroes. Those writers who most influence you. You don't know them. You haven't spent a week with them. You didn't bunk with them. They weren't your roommate. You don't know their life. We tend in the history of, of, of written biographies at times to, uh, to highlight all of these extreme and glorious and sacrificial and righteous and committed things. But, what, but we, we cannot miss this. That's not all there. There's more than that. There's not a man who lived who's righteous before God in all of his thoughts and in all of his deeds. There's not a one of us who would want all of his secrets handed out, printed Sunday to everybody in the church. Not a one. And so we, we continue to move through here. We see that, that it moves on to Christ. He goes on to speak then, uh, moving from Abraham. On to uh, look at the look at these prophetic portraits from the prophetic promise to Abraham. We look at the prophetic portraits that will unfold in a number of ways and we'll zip through these because they're rich. And I want you to just see the the main features and then read through more of the details yourself and pray and think about these. The next one is Joseph, the patriarchs jealous of Joseph and see the children of Israel. They had the tendency to exalt the patriarchs. Oh, our forefathers. The fathers of the faith. I mean, even we sing like this. Faith of our fathers, holy faith. We, sing, we think of that. Well, the forefathers, the patriarchs, were they all great men? Levi, Reuben, Simeon. Again, if you take all of them except Joseph, they all were jealous of him and sold him into slavery, Right? And that was not their only failure. And we think, well, what about Joseph? Wherein was his weakness? They were there. It's not necessary to tell us all of those details. But listen, jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, rescued him, gave him favor, made him ruler. So again, the same kind of thing. What he's doing is he's trying to draw these analogies between Christ and men. The picture here is. You all. The Sanhedrin and those he's talking to you. You're like the patriarchs. And they'd be. Oh that's good. Who were jealous of Joseph. Oh not good. See. You did this to Jesus. You know how often they were jealous of Jesus. Right. And they handed him over. And their thought what. We will put an end to him. Did that end Joseph? No. When they handed over to Pilate and he was crucified, did that end Jesus? No. He was 
As Joseph was rescued, Christ was resurrected. As Joseph then became ruler, Christ also is exalted as Lord and ruler. That's what it tells us in Acts 2 and Acts 3. And so in the same ways, he's trying to get them to understand this. God had given these promises. Abraham didn't get it. All of the people wandering in the wilderness didn't get it. And ultimately, it was pointing forward to the real reception of it that is in Christ. And you guys don't get it. And the same thing, here is Joseph. And you did, like the patriarchs did to Jesus. Not only Joseph, but he moves on from Joseph uh, down in verse 17, to, down through, to, through verse 45, to Moses and Joshua. And as he begins to, to unfold those things, he says uh, how, how it came into his heart to deliver them. It goes on further down in verse 32 to say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. And he says to them, as we already read, the end of verse 34 says, I will send you to Egypt. I have come down to deliver them. I will send you to Egypt. Much like the, that, the, the, the picture comes across. To he, here is this. And when, when Moses came, were they excited and ready to receive initially? No, they were reluctant. God determined that he would deliver and he sent forth his son. Sent him to his own people. And his own people, John chapter 1, received him not. They rejected him. The, the deliverer that God sent. Verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected. Saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. And I think, wow. Um, the way that the scriptures unfold the same thing. Look what it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 36 concerning Jesus. In Acts 2 verse 36 it says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Look what it says in chapter 3 verse 26. It says God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning everyone from your wickedness. Here, uh, God had sent Moses and their response was, verse 35, rejected. Who made you ruler? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. By the hand of the angel that appeared to him. This man led them out. That is all a picture of Christ. He sent him. He was rejected. They rejected him, but God declared him ruler and redeemer. And they're not seeing that they're following the same pattern of rejection and disobedience. Goes on in verse 42 to say, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. Further, if you'll go down with me now to verse 45, it turns to David. The father's turned in turn, brought in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before them. Again, reminding them, did Joshua 
deliver the land into their hands? No. God drove out the nations. God's the one who brought them in. It says, uh, and so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the most high does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says. So here, here comes along David and Solomon. And their commitment was to a house. And God didn't allow David to buy a, build a house. He allowed Solomon to do it. And Solomon would be that one who would come along. Following that fulfillment and that promise that God had given to David. Where he would say to him. Words like this, 1 Corinthians 22. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon. Which if we uh, spoke Hebrew, you would re realize that that's just a name variant of Shalom. Of which we call Christ. He would be our everlasting father, prince of peace. He goes on to say, he shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son and I will be his father. And there was a temporal historic sense in which Solomon would build a house for his name. There would be a much more abiding sense in which Jesus, son of David, would build a house for his name. That house would not be in Jerusalem. It would not be in a hill, on a hill in Samaria. It would be his people from every tongue, tribe, and nation assembled in his name. Assembled with that, with that great fulfillment. That's why it says this in 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Acts 2 says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that David died and was buried and in his tomb to this day. Same could be said of Solomon. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn him an oath, saying that he would sit one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So one by one, every single one of these things points down to Christ. And that's when he comes into it and says the, speaks of the promised one. Look what it says in verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Now, sadly, this sermon ends up being not unlike the sermon that uh, was preached by Paul at Areopagus. Remember his sermon, the moment he began speaking about resurrection from the dead, they began mocking him and kind of cut him off. Speaking of who will judge by a man whom he's appointed. By raising him from the dead. They cut him off. He didn't get to go on and declare to him. This man. This one raised from the dead. This is Jesus. There's salvation and no other. They cut him off. But said they would hear him again. And he clearly had the privilege to unfold it to a few more interested. Because it says many others believe. Here again. As he speaks of the righteous one. That they themselves have delivered. And killed. And betrayed and murdered at the end of verse 52. 52. They themselves come against him. They cut him off. He said the righteous one. He doesn't even get to finish unfolding all of the details of it. Because he's cut off. But they got the message. 
jealous, rejected, fleshly, you need to turn from that. You need to repent of that. Don't be like those who have failed in the past. Don't perpetuate that pattern of sin, stiff-necked rebellion. To which their response was severe sin and stiff-necked rebellion. Look what it says. Uh, uh, and this is something that, again, makes people uncomfortable. But look what it says in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. That, that, that word stiff-necked is a strong word. And it's not only said of them. In Exodus 33, it says this. In 33.3 and in 33.5. I'll read Exodus 33.5. It says, For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up with you, I would consume you. He says the same thing to them in Deuteronomy, speaking about their stiff neck. In Deuteronomy 9, 6, and 13, it's there translated stubborn. You people are not willing to listen. You're not willing to learn from lessons of the past. You're not willing to hear the gospel in the present. You're stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and rebellious. Not only that, when he, when he expands this idea of how stiff-necked they are, he says uncircumcised. Which is not something that Jews want to hear. Because to call them uncircumcised means what? They're not God's people. They're cut off from the covenant. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now the sense there is not the resisting of the internal work of the Holy Spirit. That, by the grace of God, none can or do resist. This passage tells us how, what, how they resist the Spirit. They resist the Spirit in resisting the men that God sends with a message. Resisting the men God sends and resisting the message God sends. And you see this very, very clearly in verse 52 and 53. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? How did they resist the Spirit? The Spirit would give a message from God to a man. That man would go on behalf of God. And they would reject and persecute the man. That's one way they were resisting the Spirit. The Spirit's work in sending a man, a prophet among them. Secondarily, they would resist the message. And they killed those who announced beforehand the righteous one who you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels, but did not keep it. Received the law, message announced, and what was their, their responses? Message announced, message rejected. Law given, law disobeyed. That's how they resisted the Holy Spirit. They refused to heed the men God sent. They rejected and disobeyed the message God sent. And he's trying to deliver to them that much like Moses delivered the children of Israel by God's hand and purpose, Christ is the only hope of deliverance. 
but they all they can hear is what? I've failed. Our forefathers have failed. You're not making the priority our history, our people, our men, our land, our temples. You're, you're disparaging us. You're despising us. You're putting us down. I hate to say this, but the gospel puts us down. Puts us down on our knees and says, moves our heart to say this, God would be right to smite me. God would be right to pour out his wrath on me. But oh God, have mercy on me in Jesus' name. May it be that his righteousness be counted as mine, that his sacrifice cleanse my sin. May it be that I be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that is according to the law, but a righteousness that is by faith in him. Amen? This is what it is. And so this passage simply unfolds to us these realities. It gives us a panorama of God's provision, providence. He did this. He did this. He did this. And what's interesting we see is in all of these historic things that God did. In these different eras and epochs and different men. God was controlling it. It was prophetic and purposeful. And it would lead specifically to a person. And that person is Christ. And we see that as this unfolds, the prophetic promise would be given to Abraham and his offspring. And that offspring finds its great fulfillment in Christ. Then we see those portraits in Joseph, jealous and rejected and abandoned. But God determined, no, he's ruler and Lord. And the same thing with Moses. Who made you ruler and Lord? With Christ, who made him ruler and Lord? God did. Raised him from the, de the dead. Declared to be the son of God with power. Declared to us that all men are rejectors. All men are despisers. All men and women are by nature stiff-necked and stubborn. But there is a righteous one. There is salvation. There is a deliverer. And it is Christ. None but Christ. And only Christ. And you must know him. And you must heed him. And you must hear him. Don't follow the consistent pattern. Not only of the world around. Which, which the Jews already looked down on. Don't follow the pattern of your patriarchs. That were all failed themselves. Men continue to stumble and continue to fall. But we're not for the grace of God. Who has given us that promised one. That righteous one. And then sends his spirit to us. To give us. To circumcise our hearts. And open our ears. Giving us the grace. To hear. And believe. And obey. With real repentance. Real faith. Real hope. That is grounded upon Christ. So that we are by grace to those. Who receive the man. That God sent as the only hope and salvation. And we receive entirely all the word that he has given to us. And we thank God that Christ has fulfilled all righteousness 
on our behalf. And by his grace at work in us, we strive to walk worthy of that call. Amen? Let's pray.